And in Colossians chapter 3, Pastor Cruz will be preaching on this portion this morning. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15, I would like to read for you. And if you're using the Bible that is under the pew, that is on page 1,253. Colossians 3, starting at verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. This is the word of the Lord. When Jen and I were dating, we liked to occasionally go on dates to Dairy Queen. On one such occasion, I remember we, we pulled up to the drive through like any ordinary time. Uh, we ordered our ice cream, and, and I remember we pulled around to the window in which you, you pay the cashier. And I remember we pulled up to this window, and the cashier, I went to hand her probably my credit card or uh, a few bucks, and I remember she said, you guys are paid for. We were blown away, and we were actually a little confused at first, and I said, how? And she said, the person in front of you uh, paid for you. And immediately we, we started looking to try and see who it was, and either their car had already uh, went by or, or we couldn't see who it was. So we don't know if we knew the person or if it was just some random act of kindness. But either way, we were shocked by such an act of kindness. Probably wasn't that expensive of a bill, but we thought, who does that? Uh, what a kind gesture from someone we knew or maybe didn't know. Well, the cashier gave us our ice cream, and, and we started pulling away, and then it dawned on us, we should have done the same thing for the person behind us. We were so astounded by the, the act of kindness that the person in front of us had showed that we didn't even consider paying for the person behind us, and we were disappointed after that. But um, this morning, we, as we prepare to take communion, we're we are going to be considering what has been done for us and what our response should be. What are the implications of Jesus Christ's death on the cross? Certainly marveling at the cross is, is an appropriate reaction, and, and we should marvel and stand in awe of Jesus Christ. Certainly worship is a correct response to have to Jesus Christ's death on the cross. Maybe we could ask the question, should it have an effect on how we treat our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? So certainly we should marvel, certainly we should worship, but we should have a response to what has been done for us. Just like Jen and I missed out on the opportunity to, to show an act of kindness, just like we have been shown an act of kindness, we shouldn't miss out on responding to Jesus Christ's death on the cross, just like he has treated us. So we're going to just take one verse this morning. Jack has 
read a passage in Colossians, the larger context of our verse, but we're going to look at just one verse, and that's verse 13. We're going to take it phrase by phrase, and only at the end, with the last phrase, will we consider our theme, or, or maybe the point that should be driven home from this verse. So we're going to split Colossians 13 into three sections, or look at three sections in specific. The first is this. We're going to consider the situation. So look with me at Colossians 3.13, and I hope you keep your Bible open to the book of Colossians as we're going to look at verse 13, but throughout we will be jumping to a few passages in Colossians to kind of show how the book connects. So Colossians 3.13 says this, and we get the situation. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another. If one has a complaint against another. First, we'll consider the context for this verse. Paul is listing off Christian virtues. Paul's seeking to show the transformation that should be in the life of a believer. If you think about the Bible, we have similar, as, you re- as Jack read through these, it might have sounded familiar from other portions of the Bible, Romans has a text like this. Ephesians has a very similar text to what we have in Colossians this morning. So it was a, it was a common thing for, for Paul to write about Christian virtues. But specifically, if you look at some of these, starting in verse 12, we see that these virtues concern our interactions with other Christians, showing that a vital part of the Christian life is spent around other Christians, being in community, with other Christians, in one sense, just like we are today, by gathering together as the church. So Paul is answering in our verse and in the larger context the question of how are we to live in community with one another? How are we to treat our fellow Christians? Well, here in verse 13, we're going to focus on uh, one or, or maybe two of these virtues in specific. In verse 13, Paul brings the possibility of a Christian finding fault with another Christian. Again, as it says in verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another. So Paul brings up the chance that a Christian has hurt another Christian, that someone was offended by another Christian. Maybe they were insulted, not included, lied about, thrown under the bus, left out, not talked to, or maybe they were the topic of gossip. And if you've been around Christians for any amount of time, you should realize that you have complaints against your fellow Christians. I think all of us here would agree that actually more often than, than we should, we, have, we find fault with other Christians. You understand what Paul is bringing up here, and you realize that this is neither a one-time issue, nor is it something that is minor. These complaints can ruin relationships. This fault-finding can really give another Christian a bitter taste in their mouth when they think about a fellow Christian. These hurts can tear apart families. They can tear apart churches. These grievances disrupt the harmony that should be within the church. We know this because we've been on one side or the other. Maybe you've been on the, the side in which you've, you've wronged a fellow Christian, and you, you see the effects of how you've wronged them. Or maybe you've been on the other side and you've been offended and you know how it feels to be hurt. You know the pain. You know the broken relationships that it causes. As we consider complaints or faults that we find in our fellow Christians, we also can say that sometimes 
They may not even know what the fault is that you're finding with them about. Actually, more often than not, they are probably oblivious to what they are doing wrong or what they are not aware of in themselves that we take offense at. Here in one short verse, Paul will challenge these Christians in Colossae and and us this morning to consider the Christian response and the basis for that response. So we'll consider the rest of verse 13. So first, we get the situation, all right? And and we we all should learn from it. We all have been in it. We will be in a time in which we find fault with another Christian. But the second section, we're going to consider the question of how are we to respond? How are we to respond when we find fault with another Christian? And then thirdly, and lastly, we'll look at why are we to respond that way? Why should we respond in the way that we're going to find out? So the second section, the question is, what are we called to do when we find fault in a fellow Christian? Look again with me at Colossians 3.13. It says, bearing with one another. And if one has complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forgiving each other. And before we look at these two phrases, bearing with one another, what's that mean? And forgiving each other. I want you to consider how you usually respond when you find fault with another Christian. Imagine you find out that someone in the church has been talking behind your back and spreading false things about you. What's your normal reaction? To, to do the same thing to them. Maybe to call them out, to let into them for their wrongdoing. Maybe to go home and grumble to your spouse. Or whenever you think about them, you just get this bitter feeling inside you. Imagine you're left out of a get-together with people you get along with. How would you respond? Imagine someone speaks the truth about you, and the truth offends you, and probably should not have been spoken. How do you react? Imagine your spouse doesn't do something you feel like they should do. How do you respond? Imagine your brother or your sister does something that makes you really upset. How do you respond? Maybe some of these things have happened to you, or maybe you can think of other ways in which you've found fault with other Christians. Consider your normal reaction to being offended by a fellow Christian. And I would say when we think about our reactions, we usually lash out by seeking revenge or declaring what they did wrong. Or maybe we hold it in and we let the, the resentment boil just like water on a stove. Or we wait till we get home and in private, we unleash our thoughts and feelings to our family every time that person is mentioned. So we can think about our normal response, but I also want you to think about the world's response. So outside of these doors, if it's in in your workplace or in school um, or just in our culture, you think about television shows are made to watch people fight with their words or even sometimes their fists. We love to watch the drama unfold when someone is offended. The world cheers you on. Maybe you have friends that cheer you on to get even or to complain about the wrongs done to you. We are encouraged to respond from the world in such a way that brings up that relives and never lets go of the offenses of other people. Is that how we as Christians should respond? It comes so natural to us. Shouldn't we just respond how we feel in the moment? We might feel as if we can't hold back, but is that how God wants us to deal with Christians that hurt us or offend us 
even if they're in the wrong. So that's, that's the reality. We find fault, and oftentimes the fault finding that we have, we're not wrong. The person has sinned, or the person has done something really offensive to us. How should we respond? Look again with me at Colossians 3.13. It reads, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So two phrases we'll look at. The first is, bear with one another, which speaks of enduring with each other. It speaks of tolerating each other and how we act towards each other. Tolerating the offenses that people bring to us. It speaks of putting up with each other. Paul is intending this command to be positive. He doesn't mean bear with one another in the sense that you'll put up with them, but when you get home, you can complain, you can think about them in a resentful way. When he says bearing with one another, he's talking about a godly thing. He's saying putting up with them, putting up with their offenses. But then he adds on. He doesn't just leave it with bearing with one another, but he tells us what we should do to them. And that's in the second phrase, as he says, forgiving each other. The phrase forgiving each other speaks of graciously letting go of wrongdoing. The idea here with these two phrases together is when someone wrongs with you, you deal with it. You don't retaliate, but that doesn't mean that you bottle it up inside. As Paul says, to forgive each other. We are to let go of the sins that people have against us, have done against us. We are to treat them how they do not deserve. That's what it means to forgive each other. We're to treat each other how we don't deserve. So someone who's wronged you, maybe they've said something to you that's hurt. They deserve to be punished. They deserve to maybe have those words said to them. But we aren't to do that. That's not to be our response as Christians. We are to go about treating them as if it hadn't happened. Now, I realize that this isn't always agreed upon even in Christian circles. A phrase that you may have heard before or even used is, I've forgiven this person, but I won't forget. I've forgiven this person, but I certainly won't forget. And when we think about that, it sounds nice, but I really wonder what's going on inside of you. What are you saying when you say this? I think we are still holding on to these sins, even if we say we've forgiven them, but we won't forget. We're not fully letting go of their sins. We're still holding in resentful thoughts towards this person. Really, we are just speaking words of forgiveness with no action. That's not what's being talked about here in Colossians. It's not just saying you forgive them, but your actions don't show that. Our actions need to match up with our words here. And if you think about this, I'm not trying to make it a light thing or an easy thing. If you've ever forgiven someone, you know that is one of the hardest things that you have, have ever done. Forgiving someone is one of the hardest things that you will do. It's going against your natural instinct. Your natural reaction, as we already considered, is either, either to lash out or to let your insides be filled with bitterness. This is going to seem so unfair. But we are called as Christians to let go of the sin of those who have wronged us. So this is where we come to our third section. And we have to consider why. Why should we let someone who has done great wrong off the hook? Why should we treat people how they don't deserve? Why should we overlook an offense? So we come to the why, our third 
and last section of Colossians 3.13. Look with me there again at Colossians 3.13. It says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then it says this. This is the basis. This is the reason. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's because that's what God did for us. It's important to consider what is not the basis here. So before we uh, deal with this, this last phrase, it's important to think about what is not the basis. It's not that we have been treated well by others. It's not that what others did to us didn't hurt. It's not because our lives weren't affected much by what was done. And it's not even because they asked for forgiveness. Someone may not ask for forgiveness or ever ask for forgiveness, and we still should forgive them. The basis for your forgiveness is that God has forgiven you. And this is exactly what we find in the book of Colossians, as Paul uh, has said already. We haven't studied this book, at least in the past couple weeks, so we're kind of just jumping in the middle of the passage. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, and we see Paul's already been been um, developing this theme of forgiveness in this letter, as we'll see several times. Colossians 1, verses 13 through 14, we see this. He speaks of God's forgiveness as it says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Turn over a chapter to Colossians 2, 13 through 14, and we get even more, and we're told how we have been forgiven. We learn that it's only through God, the Son, Jesus Christ, that we could be forgiven, specifically through his death, as it says in Colossians 2, 13 through 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So it was only through the death of Jesus Christ that we could be forgiven by God. And maybe you're sitting here, and maybe either you've never believed in Jesus Christ, you just don't get it, you you don't see what is in it for you or why you would ever need to believe in Jesus Christ, or maybe you're a believer here sitting and You've forgotten the gospel, or at least need a refresher. And maybe you're thinking, what do I have to be forgiven by God? What's he forgiving me of? Well, look with me. Um, flip back to chapter 1, Colossians 1, through 22 spells it out for us. It tells us about what we were like before we were saved. Or if you're not saved or have never believed in Jesus Christ, what you are like now. It says... In Colossians 1, 21 through 22, it says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This verse gives us two phrases. It says we were hostile in mind. And this word hostile literally speaks of us being enemies with God. That we saw God as an enemy. We hated God in how we lived our life, even in how we spoke. We were hostile in mind. The God who created all people, who created us, was hated by his creation. 
And then the second phrase there, it says, we were hostile mind, doing evil deeds, which speaks of, for those that are not saved, are living in sin. They were acting wickedly and sinfully against God. When we disobey God's word, we are going against God. It is hurtful and disrespectful to God. That's what we needed to be forgiven of. We had treated God in a way far from how he deserved to be treated. So we see that God treated us how we didn't deserve. God let go of our sins. God certainly did not retaliate. God certainly did not let bitterness and resentment grow. God did not even wait for us to make the first move towards him to ask for forgiveness. God reached out to us and provided the way for us to be forgiven through the death and suffering of his son on the cross. That is the forgiveness that we have been forgiven with. So when Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive, that is the forgiveness he's talking about. God's forgiveness towards us before we were saved. The forgiveness that God went to great costs to provide as it involved his death. That is the theme of this verse. This is the point that if you don't get anything else from this message that you need to understand, we have been forgiven, so too we must forgive. We have been forgiven, so too we must forgive. We must forgive. Just as God forgave us, we need to forgive our brother and sister in Christ. God has let go of all of our sins, and we need to do the same with all the sins of other Christians. So the question that I'd like you to think of, and I think it allows us to be able to take this message that we have been forgiven, so too we must forgive. I think the first question we have to ask is, who is it that you need to forgive? Who is it that you need to forgive? And I challenge you to think of someone right now. Think of, probably for most of us, it's a list of people that we need to forgive. Who is it that you need to let go of their wrongdoing towards you and treat them how they do not deserve? Who is it that you need to forgive? And as we close out this passage, I just want to show you that this isn't just something that Paul's writing. Paul wasn't just writing to the Colossians and saying, you've been forgiven, so you need to forgive. And he wasn't just saying that flippantly. But we see that this was something in Paul's life that he made a reality. That Paul was actually an example of the things that he preached. He practiced what he preached. So if you look with me at Colossians 4, and we'll look at verse 10. And we're going to come across someone that Paul needed to forgive, and we're not told the extent of the story here, and I'll, I'll flip to a few passages to show you, but look with me at Colossians 4, verse 10. Verse 10, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And then here's the name I want you to see. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. Mark, or another name that you may know him as in the scriptures is he's sometimes called John Mark. John Mark is an interesting uh, story, and he's not one in which we're given his whole story right in one letter. But as we piece, piece together different verses and passages that talk about him, we see that this was someone that Paul did not get along with, that Paul did not agree with, that at one point Paul did not like too much. 
John Mark actually eventually becomes, it's believed that he is the author of the Gospel of Mark, and he becomes an apprentice of the Apostle Peter. But he has a long history before that with the Apostle Paul. And you don't have to turn there. You probably have heard this passage before. But Acts 15, 36 through 41 records to us the separation between Paul and Barnabas. The two missionary friends, um, they actually split. In Acts 15, 36 through 41, it says this. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. So there's the Mark in Colossians. And then it says this in verse 38. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, done, had gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This passage shows here that Paul had a real problem with Mark. Mark had deserted them. He probably turned away from the missionary journey uh, months prior because of selfish reasons, following maybe the ways of the world. But either way, we see that he had done something wrong, and Paul was not happy about it, as it caused him to actually separate from maybe his best friend or a very close friend at the time, Barnabas. So we certainly see that Paul had an argument with Barnabas, but he also, from this, we can see he certainly did not like or did not agree or get along with Mark too much. So when we come to Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, and Paul says this, Our starkest, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And we have several other passages, one in Philemon, and several other letters that Paul is telling the people to welcome Mark, that Mark is a fellow worker. And these letters were written after this argument that Paul had with Barnabas, showing that we don't know when, we don't know how, but these two reconciled. Paul forgave Mark, something that he didn't agree with, something that Paul uh, maybe was offended by, Paul forgives him. And then in our letter of Colossians, we actually see him living out, practicing what he preached, that just as he was forgiven by Jesus Christ, he was to forgive Mark. And it's just a neat, neat illustration of this passage, and it shows the reality of the gospel, the implications that the gospel should have. So let us consider this truth as we take communion this morning. What the end of our verse says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. We have been forgiven by Jesus Christ through his death on the cross. So too, we must forgive. And we'll close with this again. Who is it that you need to forgive? And I'd like us all to really think about that and to think about the next steps that you need to take to actually forgive, to let go. And even as our call to worship said, God, cast our sins into the depths of the sea. We need to let go of the sins of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. So at this time, I'd invite the men to come forward for communion. And as they prepare...